Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host, Andre Ganoella. And today we are deeply honored and privileged to be joined by Nabil Fami. Now, uh, Dean Fami is the founding dean of the School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the American University in Cairo. And before that, he had over three decades of distinguished service in Egypt's diplomatic service. He served as ambassador to the United States, ambassador to Japan, and as foreign minister of Egypt from 2013 to 2014. He's had a significant role in Egypt's foreign policy in framing it, as well as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so Dean Fami, thank you very much, sir, for joining us today. It is certainly a privilege. We look forward to having this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you both for the very kind invitation. Thank you so much. So before we really get deep into Egypt's foreign policy and the broader history of Egypt's role in the Israel-Palestinian conflict, we sort of want to get your thoughts on this most recent spate of violence uh, between Israel and really Gaza. And then, of course, what's been going on in the West Bank. We know Egypt had a role in sort of brokering that ceasefire, but we'd love to get your initial thoughts on that conflict first. Sure. Again, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has been going on for over 70 years. The lesson to draw from all that is until you solve the problem, it will continue to break out uh, and ultimately cause human and material loss. Uh, So this is a sequel in many, many different uh, breakouts. Secondly, uh, the only way to respond to it is to respond to the frustrations and needs, not the, not the uh, desires, but the frustrations and needs of the adversarial parties, per se, in this case, Palestine and, and Israel. Uh, the adversarial needs are you need to find a way to create a solution that gives both of them, both, the right to express their national identity and the right to live in peace and security. As long as you don't do that for both, you will have these problems. The present breakout in Gaza didn't actually start in Gaza. It started in Jerusalem on the West Bank. Uh, And then it spilled over into Gaza. It became even more violent there. And immediately after the ceasefire, there's also some friction again back in Gaza. And if there's one thing from all my years of experience on the peace process or having lived through it, even before I, I uh, let me rephrase that, for all of my years of experience on the Arab-Israeli conflict, not the peace process, and having lived through it even before uh, engaging professionally in the process, uh, I can assure you without any hesitation, with no probability of a mistake, this will happen again, unless we solve it. So, What Egypt did recently was try to do, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, what firemen do. Fire is on, you turn the fire off, and then you try to figure out why the fire started and to try to fix that problem. So the first thing we did this time around, like we did in the past, was put the fire off. And that meant dealing with the adversarial parties, including parties that were in, if you want, odd places. Uh, and don't, don't think I'm, I'm in trying to belittle the problem, but the reality is the Israelis were going through the fifth, ele- or fifth election, I think it was in uh, about a year or so, uh, still trying to find a government. So they weren't really in a situation of solving anything. And the Hamas, uh, which is you have the Israeli, Israelis on the right of the political spectrum and then Hamas on the right of the Palestinian political spectrum. And our relations as Egyptians with Hamas were tenuous. Uh, we have different ideological perspectives, but we, are, we live on the border with each other uh, between Gaza and the Sinai. So what we did was we engaged with two parties that didn't talk to each other that had completely different perspectives of life, and neither of which we were particularly comfortable with. But that's what you do. You deal with the choices you face. And let me just close my my long opening here by saying that dealing with regional problems is part of Egypt's destiny 
It's not, it's choice. And I can explain that further if you want. Yeah, I'd love for you to elaborate on that because I think many of our, uh, many in our audience are probably asking themselves, well, why Egypt? Why did they have this role in this sort of mediation? And I think it's important to kind of discuss um, why Egypt has, has had this role and why they are a broker of ceasefires, of these resolutions to the conflicts we've seen uh, in this conflict. And so uh, I guess the first question is, uh, Dean Fahmy, is what is the role of Egypt? Why has, has, have both sides come together and viewed Egypt as, as a broker in this process? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me, uh, not sure whether this makes you happy or not, but I get the same question even back home here. And I get the same question from some back home here who say, we shouldn't get involved. Uh, and my answer is, we don't have a choice. And let me explain what I mean by that. Egypt lives on two seas, or two waterways, or two seas, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. We actually ex are extended, in terms of our landmass, between two continents, Africa and Asia. Sinai, contrary to what people think, is actually part of Asia, not part of Africa, while the rest of Egypt is part of Africa. We import our foodstuffs. We try to attract significant foreign investment. We import our national security capacity. Uh, and while we don't buy it, our main water source comes from beyond our border. So uh, engaging in foreign policy, engaging with our neighbors is not a choice. We need to be engaged with neighbors and beyond to just assure that we can provide our own people with their basic requirements on a sustained basis. So again, foreign policy in, in our case is not a luxury. It's not a choice. It's a, it's a destiny, it's a fate. And the best way to do it is proactively. That's my first point. So we don't have a choice. It's not Egypt alone. That doesn't exist in any real sense. The other point is because we don't have a choice, we deal with people we like, and we deal with people we don't like. But we deal with them differently. If there is a party that shares with us our basic goals of moderation, centrism, uh, peace and security for all, uh, and so on, uh, equal rights uh, for, for nation states, uh, if we share that commonality, then we try to build together, building peace, building regional cooperation, and so on. That's why we started the peace process in the, in the Arab-Israeli conflict uh, post the 73 war. If we differ with each other, uh, and I give you, I'll give you an example, while we respect the right of Palestinians for independence, including Hamas in Gaza, but Hamas as part of the Palestinian state, we differ with the, with the Palestinian, with the Hamas in terms of its ideology, uh, as we differ with the Israeli right. But we still deal with Hamas because it is a player. It's on our border. But we will deal with Hamas much more in terms of the security dialogue than in terms of how do you build for the future. Now, the reason why both sides listen to Egypt, first of all, I think they very quickly realized that they both went down a very deep tunnel. And I would argue it's probably more the Israelis because after the reaction, after their, their, their attempt to, after their continued policy of destroying houses in the West Bank and, and, and Jerusalem and trying to expel Palestinians from there, that broke out uh, into uh, more engagement by uh, Gaza and the Hamas wanted to take the credit for dealing uh, with those things. So they got into the exchange of missiles. Uh, of course, the Hamas ones were much more rudimentary, and the Israelis much more sophisticated because of the difference in capacity. But after a day, two days, three days, you realize that no matter how many missiles you use, you're not going to end this. And therefore, uh, you're looking for an exit strategy. Now, who can do that? Only people who can be there on the ground. We were there on the ground in day three. It's not going to work by remote control conversation. It's not going to work by an email. Uh, you're going to have to sit there on the hot seat with the parties. And we were there on the hot seat with the parties, even at the point in time where we disagreed with them. Uh, secondly, they also know that 
the two parties, that whether they agree with us or not, we will be there tomorrow. Again, we don't have the option of saying, well, we'll, we'll we're interested in you today, but we're going to be interested in Latin America tomorrow, which is the options available in a positive sense for a superpower or an international power and so forth. We're, 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 a re we're part of the region. And I would argue thirdly, whether either party likes us or not, they also understand from the, just look at the history, we have always, whether they disagreed with us or agreed with us, we have made a commitment to using our tools, be they diplomacy or for that matter, our military capacity, to end occupation, pursue a, a, a comprehensive peace agreement between Arabs and Israelis. We started the 73 war and we started the peace process immediately after that. So yeah, either side may differ with us, but they know that our ultimate objective is peace and uh, we are not going anywhere. So it's more logical to engage with us quite quickly and they know we're going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, so I sort of want to uh, jump off the points you made about, you know, uh, Israel's, co uh, sorry, Egypt's cooperation with Israel and sort of trying to foster this sense of peace. I mean, uh, recently, of course, we've been seeing the Abraham Accords. And then, I mean, certainly, as you said, Egypt was sort of the first uh, Middle Eastern country to really go for peace with Israel at the Camp David Accords, which I'm sure our audience is somewhat vaguely familiar with, especially uh, the younger folks now, uh, considering it was back in the late 1970s. But I mean, as you said, this sort of peace process started after the, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And uh, I mean, we've had another guest who sort of described this as a bit of like an elite process, like really taken by the leadership. Uh, certainly could be very politically costly. I mean, many have said that Anwar Sadat was assassinated as a result of uh, the Camp David Accords. So what like was that point that pushed Egypt to actually seek peace? Was this more like of a longer term goal that Egypt had had leading up to Camp David? Or was it more like we have to make peace because this is the only way out? Great question. Let me just, before answering that, uh, add the following piece of information. Anwar Sadat was killed, assassinated by extremists who didn't like the, where he was taking Egypt, including on the Arab-Israeli issues, not only. But don't forget, Rabin was also the Prime Minister of Israel was assassinated by an extremist Israeli for exactly the same reason. They did, he did, they did not like what, where he was trying to take uh, Israel towards Arab-Israeli peace at the same time. So my quick conclusion is extremists will oppose reconciliation and peace, but they grow in, in an era of frustration. If you respond to the peacemakers and try to grow that area, you slowly start marginalizing the extremists. They won't disappear, and they will try to derail the process uh, as, as you go forward. But this is not something that only happens on one side versus the other. Uh, but to answer your question, as I said, uh, we're today, I think Egypt is about 104 million people. We uh, are growing at uh, pre-pandemic. The pre-COVID pandemic, we were growing at about four to five percent a year. At at the peak, it was eight percent. Well, given our population growth rate uh, and past economic mistakes, we actually need to grow somewhere between nine percent for ten successive years, just to provide enough jobs for our people, uh, to to expand the economy. Uh, our economy is uh, very much a function of the political environment. Tourism is a big component in the economy. Well, if there are wars, you're not gonna to get tourists. Uh, the Suez Canal was closed for a long time because of crisis and conflicts. That's a huge resource uh, of money for Egypt as well. Uh, thank God over the last uh, five or six years, we've, we've became more, uh, found more oil and gas reserves, so that's helped a bit. But anyway, uh, we pursue peace, even if we have to go to war first, but we pursue peace with the specific objective of creating an environment in the Middle East where we can grow and everybody in the region can grow. Uh, it's not a function 
some theoretical uh, uh, embrace of uh, a leadership mantra. It's actually driven by necessity, but it's not driven by a transactional necessity. It's driven by a long-term uh, approach to uh, what the region needs. Again, because as, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we will always be affected by foreign policy. Let me share with you a quick anecdote. When I was foreign minister, I used to joke initially and then took it seriously that my nightmares were better than my days. One, because ministers don't have time to sleep, so the nightmares are short by definition. Secondly, you wake up and they're over and they turn out not to be real. So that's the second reason. But thirdly, because when I woke up in the morning, I would see on my right westwards, Libya on fire, a failed state. Looking southwards uh, to Ethiopia and Sudan, we have a water problem. Uh, looking southwards, eastwards, Palestine, Israel, there's no peace process and anger and frustration. Further eastwards, you see Syria and, and, uh, in complete disarray at the time. And if you look southeast, you get the conflicts and, and turmoil between Iran um, and a number of the, uh, the Arab states. Over and above, the mushrooming of extremism and terrorism in the region. Uh, I want to be able to hand over the Middle East to my sons, daughters, and hopefully, if not to them, to my grandchildren, in a better state from where we received it from our parents. And regrettably, I cannot say that's the case uh, presently. Well, Dean Fahmy, I mean, Egypt has certainly undergone much change in the past decade, and we don't have you know enough time to kind of talk about all of that change. But I want to uh, hone in on something you said in particular, that being, you know, the the differences that the, the Egyptian government has with Hamas over ideology. And so Egypt, of course, has has wrangled itself with the ideology of the country where it's heading. And so um, today, of course, uh, over the Palestinian people, there are kind of two factions. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. You have Hamas in Gaza, you have Fatah in the West Bank, and both of them are struggling over who will represent the Palestinian people. And so from Egypt's perspective, right, you have to cooperate with both in order to push peace. Um, but what does that cooperation actually look like? Of course, you have more security risks on the Gazan border, naturally, um, because it's right on Sinai. And so that presents challenges. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the West Bank is, you know, the larger issue, the, the current escalation originated from tensions over the West Bank. And so, Dean Fahmy, I guess the question is, um, how can Egypt manage these two parties that are vying for the same end goal in a way that doesn't kind of, you know, try to push one side or the other? Because it's, it's a very delicate balance that has to be struck. Sure. Uh, first of all, diplomacy is complicated. It's never uh, a choice of good or bad only. It's never a choice between black and white. Uh, so I completely share with you that this is not an easy uh, formula. But secondly, I would argue that uh, it's not a transactional option, especially if you're from within the region. Uh, if you're from outside the region, you can decide, okay, I'm going to strike this deal and I'm going to go home somewhere else. But we can't. Uh, therefore, uh, we always look at the day after. Again, to, to, to fall back on my uh, fireman uh, an uh, analogy, uh, if I put out the fire but leave the fuse uh, burning, it's going to start again. Therefore, even if I differ with Hamas, and I do, they, are, they, they, they embrace political Islam. Uh, I'm a practicing Muslim and proud of it, but I do not support political Islam in what we've seen. Uh, so it, we're more inclined to deal with the Palestinian Authority, which is more secular in its, in its approach to governance, per se, with all due respect to religion, whatever the religion is. Uh, so we will deal with all of them. If we're dealing with crisis issues, we deal with crisis issues with those who are players in the crisis. If we're dealing with the, the, the building process, then we deal with players who are have a building process that is more consistent with our approach. But let me make a, emphasize the complexity. The reality is we will choose how, or if you, what is acceptable in our own domestic system. 
but we don't enforce our choices on others. So whatever the Palestinians choose to do, uh, we respect that in their own territories, provided it does not spill over into uh, problems for other neighboring states. And uh, we have dealt with uh, people on the right, people on the left, Islamists, non-Islamists, all over the world. And without it being a conflict, provided they don't try to use that to influence what happens back home. So again, it's not transactional. It's not a matter of choice. We will deal with all. Uh, uh, and it's complex. There's no question. We need, and you know, one huge resource we have is we've been around for 7,000 years. So two things we've never been accused of, being young or being naive. Uh, we've gone through the experiences. But we share something, and this is, frankly, the driving force behind this phase of my career. 65% of our population is 30 years or younger. So my people want the future. They don't want lessons in history. They will learn from history, but they want options for the future. Therefore, they need security. They need stability. They need, and I, and I argue that a quarter of the Middle East lives in Egypt. Middle East is about 400 million, 104 live in Egypt per se. Uh, therefore, what happens in Egypt is a, uh, what your generation uses is a trend throughout, throughout uh, the region. Uh, therefore, when we argue, let's build for the future, it's not something that uh, isn't heard in other parts of, of the Middle East. And, and let me just close this point with, a, with, with, an, with a also a personal reflection. I have younger children, adults, but they're younger than I am, of course. And I have young, very young grandchildren. When I talk to these two generations, they're both Egyptian. They're both passionate about their country, but they're much more internationalists than I am uh, because they've traveled but I had traveled also, but because they traveled every 10 seconds on the internet. So, so they're, they're, they're engaged, they have a different mindset. And I would even argue that their ambitions at, at their age are much larger than mine were at their age. Because the, and they were competing at what they see around the world. I didn't see those things except when I physically traveled. And I would close this point by saying, um, it's much more difficult for us to respond to these aspirations because people want to see short-term results, but you don't have the option of saying, well, ignore this. It's not going to, be, it's not going to go away. So uh, you just work with what you have looking forward and do your best. With regards to that, uh, what is your outlook for the future? Are there any... I guess, characteristics? Are there any sort of semblances of hope in adequately addressing this Israel-Palestine conflict? I mean, as you said, it's been 70 years of this, but is there anything in the future, at least in the immediate future, perhaps, that gives you some aspect of hope with regards to this? Uh, cautious hope, uh, not, not any real enthusiasm. Uh, I wouldn't bet on it, frankly. But I'm not supposed to be bidding man anyway, so that's not the, the, the issue. But let me answer your question more seriously. Uh, if you look at the pictures of what happened between Palestine and Israelis uh, last, in the last incidents, for the first time, you actually saw the New York Times putting all the Palestinian and Israeli children killed on the front page. You saw demonstrations with American Jews, not American Arabs, American Jews and American Arabs demonstrating together in different parts of America for peace, against violence, for, for peace. Uh, so I think my sense of hope is that technology is, uh, is forcing us to address our humanity, that we will not be allowed to remain complacent and allowing balances of power to overwhelm the, the, the integrity, or if you want, the, the, the core of our humanity. Our humanity is being challenged here if we remain silent. And I think I'm, I'm a strong believer in peace. I actually believe that the majority of Palestinians and the majority of Israelis 
want peace. The political trends are not helpful in either count, but I truly believe that if we are able to address the public on all sides, and there will be difficult decisions, particularly on the Israeli side, because they are the more powerful uh, on the ground. Uh, if we're able to put to the, to the Israelis and Arabs, this is the solution for a comprehensive peace. This is the price you pay for closing the chapter, not for another phase of negotiations. I sp I've spent 35 years negotiating on the subject. People don't want to risk, make, take a big risk for another phase of negotiations. They want to be told, okay, these are the five elements in the peace process. These are the details. This file will be closed once and for all if you agree to this package. Now, the negotiating parties in the region alone will not be able to do this. For balance the power paradigm uh, uh, differences. But I think if the international community work with people in the region, if governments work with NGOs and non-state parties, positive ones, uh, if we bring in the youth dimension, now again, for a, a gray-haired negotiator uh, to call, to argue that bringing in youth is, is, is a positive element may seem to be uh, strange, but it's actually, frankly an oxymoron. We definitely need uh, new thinking. We definitely need people investing in their future knowing that this will affect them directly to push things forward. And I would also argue that let's stop negotiating incrementally. It's time for closure. It's not, look, I mean, I, can, I know generations of diplomats and friends, frankly, who have made a career out of negotiating this issue. But it's almost immoral now to continue the negotiating process, given how close we are to solving this, or how close we are to losing our humanity if we don't solve it. I think that's a, a great summary of where we lie right now and the outlook towards the future. And so we will certainly see how this develops over time. But I now want to move into uh, a discussion about Egypt's foreign policy, its goals, as we, we've talked a bit about its placement in the region. Um, but I, I think we've seen kind of a development in the U.S.-Egypt relationship of late, of course, um, you know, President Trump and, and, and you know, President Sisi had a, a, a fairly good relationship. They talked quite often. I'm, I'm curious about how you view the development of the U.S.-Egypt relationship um, since your tenure uh, as foreign minister and kind of how you view the, it as a, a mutually beneficial relationship, how both can, can cooperate on a variety of issues and how the U.S. can play a, a, a role in Egypt's future. Sure. Let me take you, if I, if I may, even before I was foreign minister. Uh, but I'll pass through that period as well. America is a global power, besides it being a superpower in comparison to uh, Soviet Union in the past, to Russia or China and so on. It's a global power. It has national security interests all over the world. It has economic interests all over the world. Therefore, even if it's becoming more isolationist, it can't go back only into the continent. So that's my first point. America can't withdraw from the world completely. It's a, if you want, a relative term. Second thing is, America is trying to find its new identity. What are we now in, in today's world? Uh, the Middle East, including my own country. My own country, so excuse me, the Middle East, including my own country, is also going through an area of transformation. Uh, you'll laugh at this, but from 1952, when we became a republic, to 2010, uh, 2011, when President Mubarak left, uh, we had four presidents, 69 years, four presidents. Between 2011 and 2014, we had four presidents. You see the, the, the amount of sh shock and shift that, that's happening here. Uh, and you had similar situations, in other words, revolutionary change in many different parts of the Middle East. Uh, Middle East is trying to look for uh, its future. A country like my own, traditionally been the leader of the Middle East, is trying to determine how to lead, what to do next. And any rational person in America dealing with foreign policy or rational person in Egypt 
eating from pots. We'll draw the conclusion that for America to deal with the Middle East, you're going to have to butt heads, butt shoulders if you want, shake hands with the country that has a quarter of the people in the Middle East. And that affects most of the Middle East more than any other country in relative terms. It's not the richest country. It's not the poorest country. But if you look at the number of issues in the Middle East that Egypt's involved in, it's much larger than any other country in the region. And vice versa. When I look at, I want to expand Egypt's network of communications, economic relations, uh, support, and so on and so forth, I can't do that without competing with American companies. I can't do that without engaging American politicians. So my, de my description of the U.S.-Egyptian relationship is it is an indispensable but uncomfortable relationship. It's indispensable for both sides. And why do I say it's uncomfortable? It's a bit of, a, of an over-exaggeration. But why I say this is Americans believe in American exceptionalism, that you are the exception to be emulated. Well, Egyptians believe they're the mother of the world. So we also believe that we are sort of unique. And therefore, each one of us wants to be independent, doesn't like to have to follow, uh, wants to, to have the other work with them. America, of course, is much stronger. So it argues that in the global context, we don't compete with that in a global context. But in terms of the Middle East, we don't like to be told what to do. We actually think everybody should follow our lead. Now, nobody is completely correct here, by the way, but uh, I simply mention this because uh, even, even when we differ, we still need each other. And we, if you look at the history of relations between Egypt and the US, our agreements are much greater than our disagreements. And we fought together to liberate Kuwait that when Iraq invaded Kuwait. We worked on the peace process. We started the peace process, but we couldn't conclude it without America helping with President Carter at the time, helping Anwar Sadat and Nahim Begin uh, uh, sign the peace process. And even before that, right after the 73 war, uh, with, with Nixon and Kissinger helping us start a, a negotiating process. And we can go on and on. We, we've received tremendous amount of aid from America over the years. And by the way, America has, has had the advantage of using a lot of our security capacity over the years also to defend its own interests in the region. So, but we've had our arguments. We've had our arguments about how close you are to, to the Israelis, not fair enough with Arab rights, or uh, you're wanting to determine what we do domestically, and so on and so forth. And there will be other arguments, by the way. But if you have two important countries like this, with America being larger and stronger, but Egypt still being important and influential regionally, uh, you need to understand this is an a indispensable relationship. Therefore, make the most out of the advantages and manage disadvantages. It needs to be a well-managed relationship. Uh, I actually believe the best way to move forward, and it's a, pro a proposal that I pushed forward, uh, strongly when I was foreign minister is we actually need to be less dependent on America to be a better partner for America. Uh, and I think, frankly, that's consistent even with your relations with your allies in NATO. Uh, they're strong allies. They uh, agree with you most of the time. But because they can depend on themselves on a lot of things, when they disagree with you, it doesn't become an argument that uh, uh, raises too many eyebrows. Do we have any indication for how, or do you have any indication for how this relationship will progress under the Biden administration, like any indication from his first a few months in office? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me, because you mentioned correctly, re relations between former President Trump and President Sisi were quite warm, if you want, for lack of a better term, uh, because President Trump was very transactional. And because President Sisi had a lot of uh, pressing issues that he needed to resolve in the short term as he tried to stand up Egypt again post its uh, several revolutions, therefore it made sense in a way in the short term. Uh, President Biden in his election campaign was quite negative 
towards Egypt, frankly. Uh, but I've known President Biden since he was a senator uh, in the Senate uh, for, well, I've known him actually for more than 20 years now. Uh, he's a realist. And I was asked the same question you just asked last January, after the election, before the inauguration. And my response, which th people thought was uh, a bit pompous uh, and cute, was within six months, the rhetoric will change from campaign rhetoric to national interest rhetoric on both sides. And for five months, there were no contact at the presidential level between President Biden and President Sisi. And then in four days, President Biden phoned Sisi twice because of the crisis in the Middle East. Now, again, this doesn't need a genius to make this projection. It's just the fact is America will pursue its national interests, as will Egypt. Uh, therefore, we will agree and disagree, and it will happen again. But we can't afford to ignore each other. Uh, and I frankly think as we both, it's not only the, from the American side, as the Egyptian side gets more comfortable with how the Biden administration acts, they will also tailor their processes uh, in a fashion that's different from how uh, President Trump and his administration uh, would, would respond to it. Uh, but after President Biden phoned President Sisi, uh, after our success in, 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 in helping uh, put some ice on the present crisis in the Palestinians and Israelis, people here in Egypt were saying, everything is back to normal, everything is great. He said, no, 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 it's not. No, it's not. It's back to normal, but it's not great. It's back to normal, which means we both need each other. We can't ignore each other, but there will be problems. And that's frankly quite a healthy relationship. So I'm not, I don't think we're going to go around clapping for each other for too long. Uh, but I honestly believe the balance sheet in this relationship is much more positive than negative. So Dean Fahmy, I next want to turn, uh, of course, we've talked about Egypt's role in, in the Middle East. Of course, it's, it's an Asian power, but of course, it's an African power. Um, and it has a significant role in Africa, as, as we've talked about. But I want to dig into this a bit deeper because Africa, uh, the, the continent, there are many challenges, but also many opportunities there. You know, it has a, the, the youngest population. Um, and of course, there's been significant investment on the continent, but, you know, significant conflict as well. And many of that in, in Egypt's neighborhood, close proximity. And so um, how do you think Egypt will shape its role in Africa in particular as, as both a someone to kind of broker you know, peace in certain conflicts, um, engage in economic development, and also some sort of stabilization and kind of carrying up, lifting up Africa as we carry on into the future? I love that question. Thank you. Uh, when I was foreign minister, we were in the middle of just coming out of the second revolution, had to engage the international community as a whole on a lot of issues. How did we do it? Was it legitimate or not? And all that. Nevertheless, my first trip was to Sudan. And I underlined that our priority would be to our neighboring states. And people here found that strange because we were always talking about East and West and superpowers and so on. I said, no, 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 no. At the end of the day, we will be at war and peace with our neighbors. We're never going to be at war or peace. With, with, uh, we're never going to get into war situations with America or with Soviet Union or with China. Uh, but there are possibilities that will be problems in our neighboring states. And also the opportunities are existential with the neighboring states. And the water example, just one example. But there was other reason I'm happy with this question is when I started visiting Africa, uh, well, a generation before me, Egypt had been very supportive of African liberation. When that was the theme in Africa. And then we sort of rested on our laurels and kept talking to our African brothers and sisters about what we had done in the past. On my first visit to East Africa and then also to West Africa, uh, I remember two African presidents telling me, you're one of the very few Egyptian ministers who don't give us a lesson in history who was coming here to talk about development. 
Uh, I said, yeah, and I'm also bringing with me some investors who want to invest in your country so that they can make a profit. They're not doing it as, as a subsidy. They're doing it to make a profit because there's an opportunity here. Uh, and both African presidents, this was in Uganda and later in Senegal, said, we're so happy to hear that because now you're responding to our present day needs and concerns and aspirations. You responded correctly to our liberation needs and aspirations 25 years ago. But now our population is young, like yours, and they're talking about development. So I would argue that uh, Egypt needs to extend in more extensive relations with Africa, focusing more on development, more on building a common future. Uh, we're looking quite seriously at East Africa and trying to become a commodity hub for uh, East Africa as a whole. Uh, we're looking at developing uh, shipping lanes, uh, both in North Africa and in East Africa, and exporting energy uh, north-south from Egypt all the way down to South Africa, but also westwards in, in North Africa. So building Africa is the theme for the future. The more we do that, the more extensively we will be interlocked with our African brothers. And that's the way to go, frankly. So as you mentioned earlier in one of your answers, I mean, Egypt, you said your nightmares were sometimes better than your days, because just of all the regional turmoil to the east, to the south, to the west, and so on. And I think uh, recently, many of us have been observing what's been occurring in Ethiopia, in the Tigray region, and so on. And I think there's been, certainly been a lot of uh, tension over that, at least within the US and US foreign policy, uh, uh, that whole situation. But we're also sort of observing this, quote unquote, this water war over a the Nile River dam. Could you uh, go into that a bit and talk about like what is Egypt's role with Ethiopia and what is the prognosis for this relationship given the, these resources, these valuable resources, given that you also said uh, water resources are also very important for Egypt and they come from beyond the Egyptian border? Sure. The original agreements regarding state state agreements regarding uh, the usage of the Nile were reached by the British when they were occupying Egypt and Sudan with Ethiopia, which was actually unoccupied at the time. So we were occupied and Ethiopia was not occupied. Uh, the, the British decided for us and the Ethiopians decided for themselves. And they set limits on the amount of water that each country in around on the Nile could use from the Nile. Uh, at the time, we were less than 10% of our population today. With our population growth, I can tell you for a fact, our water requirements are 100% more than what was set for us in those old agreements. The Ethiopians today don't even want to recognize those old agreements and want to be able to manage building dams and manage the water flow. Uh, and they argue, they tell us that they want to do this to develop, for economic reasons, develop electricity. We don't have a problem with that. I mean, I personally went and talked to the Ethiopian foreign minister at the time in 1314 and said, I will go around the world fundraising for your dam, provided that we just reach an agreement on the water management, just to ensure that there's enough water flowing, not only in flood times, but also in the drought times, to Sudan and, and to Egypt. Because I don't have another source of water it's significant. I mean, the problem of the water issue for Egypt is uh, Egypt lives on about 5% of its territory on the banks of the Nile. Everything else is a desert. And the reason for that is we don't have a water source that's significant. There are some small water sources, and you can, you can do some desalinization and so on and so forth. And you can use water more efficiently. But that will affect the consumption of water by 10%. It won't be more than that. So there is a surplus of water that uh, starts in, uh, in Uganda and Ethiopia. But the problem is, how do you manage that? We're not arguing that Ethiopia should not gain uh, economic development. Quite the contrary. 
But we're trying to, I mean, the real issue is leave aside the security and environmental issues, which I hope will be taken into account. But the real issue is we just want a legally binding agreement where decisions are taken that don't affect the national interest of the other side, of, of the other two parties. Uh, I think this is possible, but because all three of us, all three, have been late in dealing with this issue, all three of us have looked at it in an adversarial posture, the negotiating environment today is not a good one. And we are coming to a uh, to very serious crossroads this summer. If they start filling the lake uh, before the dam, the second filling this summer, which they would normally do because of it's the, it's the rain season, uh, then you end up with a de facto situation where they decide how much water passes and at what pace and so on and so on. And that, frankly, would create a strategic problem for us. So we, will, we are now on this issue at threshold. This is an existential issue for Egypt. It, we are at crossroads. Uh, either there is some miracle solution that can come up. Let me rephrase that. It isn't a miracle solution because I can write out for you solutions that will accommodate all three parties. But it would need a miracle to change the negotiating climate between the three parties. Uh, I'm just not comfortable at all with that situation. And I'm seriously worried about water management in the Middle East. The one you mentioned reflects on Egypt per se, but you also have a problem in the West Bank uh, between Jordan, Palestinians, and Israelis, where Israeli consumption of water is 300% more than what's available per capita in the West Bank and, and in Jordan. So besides land, you could see water wars in the future. Besides land wars, you could see water wars. So Dean Fahmy, uh, I think as we begin to wrap this conversation now, I mean, so much of what we've talked about is conflict, conflict throughout the Middle Eastern and North African region. And especially when we're sort of looking at, you know, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, we often just see a lot of folks in these constructed echo chambers. They will have many valid concerns and, you know, tribulations about, you know, their particular side's uh, agony over this long conflict. But oftentimes they might just forget about the other side's agony and then vice versa, of course. And there's a lot of perhaps like selective information and so on. So what's your advice to young folks and, you know, folks in general regarding echo chambers? Because I think, I mean, frankly, in my view, like, you know, the, the proliferation of echo chambers sometimes can make resolving this conflict harder at the public level, at the societal level. And, you know, how do we make sure that people understand that the folks on the other side of these conflicts are people so we can actually foster peace? Thank you again for that question. Let me use my own experience when I was negotiating um, on different issues, including with the, with the Israelis. What I would do as negotiating training for myself would be to hold simulations where I would change roles. In other words, I would play the Israeli delegation and have other members of my delegation play the Palestinian delegation or play the Egyptian delegation. And that would allow me to do two things, to more seriously listen to and study what exactly are the Israeli needs, not what are, not what, the, what are they saying, what actually are their needs, which is different from their aspirations or from the negotiating tactics. And when I was able to, to do that, I would always then determine that, okay, this is what they actually need. Therefore, my best negotiating angle to achieve Egypt's needs is to focus on these elements rather than these elements and offer this and not offer this. So my first point is uh, try to figure out what the actual needs are. Don't, get, don't fall into the trap of, of, trying to, of being convinced by somebody's argument or rejecting his argument simply because he's the one making it. Just first take a step back, think through the process impassionately. What's the need? Once you determine that and you determine your needs, then you go through the 
process, okay, if that's the objective, is there, is there enough room here, theoretically, to solve the problem? If there is, then you start talking about the process. How do you get there? If there isn't, then there's no point in negotiating just now. It doesn't mean that you need to go and fight immediately. So, I mean, my argument really is I've always promoted negotiation first, negotiating second, negotiating third, even negotiating fourth, before use of force because of the ramifications of use of force and the uncontrolled factors. But that being said, uh, negotiation is not the, not the objective, it's the tool. Therefore, if negotiations, if the foundation isn't there, I wouldn't engage in negotiations and end up getting more angry than uh, resolving it. And I would try to just preserve the basis for negotiations. So again, uh, don't fall into the trap of believing what's on social media or ignoring it. Think it through and don't think it through by the weight of the arguments. I trained myself when I was a very young diplomat by going, which, which things people don't have to do now, I used to go to the, uh, the, the local libraries or the UN libraries or the specialized libraries and read presentations made by adversaries. Some of them were very eloquent, by the way. And if you close your eyes, you might actually agree with them on some things. But then I sort of thought, okay, this is very well done, but what do they actually need? Is this a mischievous way of getting something else? Uh, so again, my, my, I'm giving you a long answer, but it's a very complicated question. Respect your own mind and respect that there are, there's more than one opinion on these issues. Try to understand the need of your counterpart uh, and don't fall into the trap of uh, going along with the arguments, be they arguments of others or frankly yours. Occasionally, negotiators ultimately believe themselves when some of the arguments they're making have no real basis. But social media is not going to go away. So what I try to, to teach my students now isn't what's right and wrong, but it is critical thinking. Much more than what's right and wrong. I don't try to tell them the world will look like A, B, or C in 20 years, because I don't know what it'll look like. But I try to, to help them understand the multidisciplinary nature of many of the questions, what they need to take into account, how the process uh, should be. And that's the way you need to look at social media, because it's not going away. Without a doubt. And we can certainly use a bit more critical thinking now more than ever. And so, Dean Fami, I want to thank you for a thought-provoking conversation. Uh, Andre and I truly enjoyed discussing very important issues with you today. Um, and you know, thank you for your contributions to our generation, that being the up-and-coming generation, and to their development and their critical thinking skills. So, sir, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I hope you do much better than we did. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.